again, everyone. Welcome to Cotton Grower Magazine's Cotton Companion Podcast. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, uh, at least again, this wave of record heat is starting to get exhausting as it continues across the cotton belt and most of the rest of the country, taking its toll on cotton and other crops at a critical point in production, not to mention challenging irrigation systems and uh, air conditioning pretty much to the extreme. I'm Jim Stedman, editor of Cotton Grower, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague and friend, Beck Barnes. Beck, thanks for taking charge in our last podcast, as uh, as I'm still dealing with some of those first-world problems regarding Internet. It's there, and then it's not, and skips in and out just, uh, just as it pleases. We're still struggling from time to time, and I'm just going to blame that on the heat, too. Yeah, yeah, probably is the heat's fault. I'll blame it on the heat. I, uh... Yeah, I'm sitting here chuckling and shaking my head, and I know that you have listened, but I, when I went back and listened to the podcast from two weeks ago, I mean, I sounded like the angel of death. <laughs> I, I I had this head, late summer head cold that I'm still can't shake a cough from, but yeah, I sounded like, welcome welcome to the cotton grower. <laughs> and so um, I, I just want to uh, thank any listeners who stuck through that whole thing. I apologize for uh, sounded so haggard on that thing. I also jinxed us because on the day we recorded, we had had a couple of couple of days here in Memphis where the high was like, I mean, the, the two in the afternoon peak heat was like 84 and there was no humidity. Yep. And of course I was, I was crowing about it and I was waxing philosophical and quoting, uh, uh, William Faulkner light in August. And then here we are, it's freaking an oven outside again. So I should have known better. It was fool's fall and I am a fool. So yeah, and we are, and we are now back to uh you know to sudden summer again. Actually more like more like surface of the sun summer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's um it's not it's not pleasant outside at the moment. Well despite the heat, you know, a lot's happened in the cotton market over the last several weeks regarding production projections, prices, and other factors. So in this episode, our good friend, Dr. O.A. Cleveland, is going to join us, try to put some of these recent events and the rest of this production season into some type of perspective. As always, it's going to be interesting, so stay tuned, because we never know which direction that conversation may go. Yeah, always fun to hear from O.A., but but first, uh, we want to hear from the good folks at Cargill, who are sponsoring this episode of the Cotton Companion. Big thanks to Cargill. Uh, and they're going to tell us a little bit more about their cotton-specific programs for growers relating to soil regeneration, carbon, and other topics. Here's our colleague, custom content editor Larry Aylward, and he's got a custom interview with Cargill representative Krista Rickman. Hello, I'm Larry Aylward, custom content editor for Meister Media Worldwide, the publisher of Cotton Grower Magazine. I'd like to welcome Krista Rickman, the commercial strategic lead for Cargill Cotton. Krista is going to answer some questions about sustainable cotton and what it means for farmers. First, a little bit about Krista. She has held various roles within the cotton business during her 30-year career with Cargill. In her current role, Krista is responsible for the cotton sustainability portfolio and engaging with brands and retailers. She also serves on several boards, including the International Cotton Association, and the National Cotton Council. Krista, welcome. Thanks, Larry. I'm really excited to be here. It's good to have you. Krista, tell us about yourself and your role with Cargill. Well, 
as you said, I've been with Cargill for over 30 years. I've held a variety of different roles. I've worked on the accounting finance side of the business for quite some time. I've been a controller for our North American business. I've led our global supply chains, which includes trade execution, logistics, supply chain, warehousing. And now um, I'm thankful and lucky to be leading our sustainability programs and working with brands and retailers. It's been an exciting 30 years and I love the cotton business. Krista, how are retailers thinking and acting in regard to sustainability? That's a great question. It really depends on where the retailers and brands are on their sustainability journey. However, most brands and retailers all have similar goals when it comes to sourcing raw materials in a responsible and sustainable manner. This is an area where we continue to see demand grow. Another area that's impacting brands and retailers is, is compliance. Recent legislation requires that brands and retailers have to understand their supply chain and where raw materials are being sourced. U.S. Customs and Borders require that importers have their supply chains mapped to ensure that items made from cotton grown in Zingzang are not being imported back into the U.S. The ban of the Zingzang cotton is due to forced labor issues, and this has really pushed brands and retailers to become aware of all the different companies and counterparties involved in their supply chain. Traceability within the supply chain is super important to brands and retailers. Nobody wants to have their goods stopped by customs under a withhold release order or commonly referred to as a WRO. This is an area where Cargill can help provide traceability solutions that will assist brands and retailers with addressing those regulations from the U.S. and future regulations from the EU. We can work directly with textile mills or even provide insights into fiber tracer technologies that help prove the origin. Krista, in our last podcast, we talked with a colleague of yours, Jared Jacobs, about regenerative agricultural practices in soil health. From the retailer and brand perspective, why is their interest in regenerative ag? We see brands investing in programs that encourage regenerative farming practices. Normally, these are types of pilots, and they are extremely hard to scale. As Cargill, we can offer brands and retailers access to scalable programs because of the focus and importance that we place on that farmer relationship. Brands are interested in scaling regenerative ag practices because it allows them to make progress towards their own sustainable commitments. At Cargill, we can help scale, and we can help brands and retailers be connected to the farm gate and to those farmers who are doing those practices. Krista, how can Cargill support brands and retailers in their sustainability journey? Another great question. Cargill can help provide supply chain solutions by connecting the farm gate to the consumer. We've got scalable solutions for traceability and sustainability. Cargill can help brands and retailers achieve their goals for sourcing cotton in a sustainable, traceable, and responsible manner. We are the connection between the farm and the brand. Our programs focus on the farmer and focus on rewarding the farmer for practices they are doing or wanting to adopt. We have a regeneratively sourced cotton program that's open to any farmer who wants to do or implement new practices. In addition to that, they can also stack that with other programs that are already available in the market, such as U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol or BCI. And those who are interested in, in environmental outcomes, such as carbon, we have Cargill Region Connect, which is a program that requires some additionality. Cargill is the connection from the farm to the shelf. 
Krista, thank you for taking the time to provide cotton growers with this pertinent information about regenerative agricultural practices. Thank you. It's been great to be here. I've enjoyed sharing Cargill's perspective on this. Well, thanks to Larry and Krista for sharing that information. Now, before we welcome uh, Dr. O.A. Cleveland into our virtual studio, we do want to share a couple of cotton industry news items that are making headlines. During its uh, recent annual meeting, the Cotton Board reviewed and voted to recommend Cotton Incorporated's 2024 budget of $89 million for the Cotton Research and Promotion Program. That's a uh, $2 million increase in 2023. So the board has approved that and sent it on to the Secretary of Agriculture for his final sign-off. That, during that meeting, the board also elected new officers to lead the organization over the coming year. Mark Nichols, who's a cotton producer from Altus, Oklahoma, was elected chairman of the board. He's joined in the leadership roles by Vice Chairman Akiko Inui. And I hope I pronounced that right. If I didn't, I apologize. Well done. Uh, and then he's an importer from New York City. Uh, secretary will be Matt Famer, who's a producer from La Mesa, Texas. And treasurer is Rusty Darby, producer from Chester, South Carolina. So congratulations to those folks. And, and you have our appreciation for stepping up to serve the cotton industry this year. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. Uh, take a quick look here at the most recent USDA crop progress numbers for cotton. And uh, they show that for the week ending August 20, bowl set is now reported in 81% of the total U.S. crop, with open bowls now visible in 19% of the crop. Again, that means I better see some cotton kids photos flooding our email inboxes here soon. So we're getting them, trust me. Okay, good. That's good to know. Mostly come to you. So you you would be. Yeah, South Texas is stepping up. Yeah, there we go. Now, compared to the five-year average, this crop is pretty much back on schedule, which is good news. Cotton condition, however, continues to be a concern, uh, especially in the Southwest, in Texas and Oklahoma. The report shows that 33% of the total crop is rated good to excellent, 21% fair, and 46% now poor to very poor, with harvest already underway in parts of South Texas. Yeah, those, uh, those numbers get a little distressing, particularly when you look at the individual state numbers for, for Texas and Oklahoma, where you're looking at uh, poor, very poor ratings of like 60, you know, in the 60s and 70 percent. Yeah, and they were just came off a terrible year a year ago. Yeah, so. yeah. now they're going to make a crop. It's just not going to be what they hope for yeah. at this point. But, uh, you know, fingers crossed and, you know, Maybe something will happen before before harvest in that area. Yeah. But anyway, and finally, we have a quick reminder that the deadline for U.S. growers to apply for the Climate Smart Cotton Program through the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol is coming fast. It comes up. Uh, your deadline is September 1st. Participating growers will receive technical and financial support, as well as other benefits to help enhance their operations, profitability, and their environmentally, environmental stewardship. Applications are being approved on a first-come, first-served basis. If you haven't already registered, you can apply for the Climate Smart Cotton Program and enroll in the Trust Protocol at www.trustuscotton.org. Well, in addition to the challenges of finishing this year's cotton crop out, it's been a crazy and a bit confusing couple of weeks on the market side of this industry. There's a lot to unpack and discuss and there's no one better to explain what's going on and what may lie ahead than Dr. O.A. Cleveland, 
Professor Emeritus of Agricultural Economics, Mississippi State University. Oway, it's been a while since we've had the opportunity to visit. Welcome back to the Cotton Companion. It's always my pleasure. I hope I hope y'all's time is worthwhile. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, we're going to find out. Okay. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we're going we're to backtrack here for just a, a, a moment. For a couple of weeks ago, you said cotton was kind of heading into its August doldrums. You know, prices were flat, but okay. Production was on schedule. Not much excitement going on. And then USDA dropped its August supply demand report. Things got a little crazy. And Mother Nature then decided to join in and decided we all needed a little bit more heat and possibly a few tropical storms on the way. So if you would, you walk us through the past few weeks and how this has all impacted U.S. cotton. Okay, thank you. If I can do that, that's a, that's a challenge in and of itself. itself. Well, yes, as you said, the August, August doldrums, as I had commented, that set in. And uh, as you said, the, the, U, the USDA World Supply Demand Report gave us a crop that was 2.5 million bales lower than their July estimate. Now, that was the largest single month drop on record based on an estimate that was not calculated via an on-farm survey, a st the st statistical survey that runs from August through December. So just such a massive drop in, 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 in one month. Uh, people commented, well, the market's going to be limited up today. Well, it was up 150, maybe 220, 30 points at one time, settled 150 in round numbers, points higher. And people were all set to say, okay, this market's going to take off now because USDA lowered the crop from 16.5 million bales down to 14 million bales. And they also lowered world carryover from, again, round numbers from 94 million bales down to 91 million bales. A tremendous decrease in available supply. Uh, and the market on that report and uh, on the, uh, the the week of that report had gained something like about 350 points. Uh, and the following week, as the numbers set in and people began to see that, yes, the crop is considerably smaller, yes, the world carryover is considerably smaller, the market said, wait a minute, we still have 91 million bales of cotton sitting in, in, the, in warehouses around the world or, or in the field based on what we think we will harvest. And we're not going to consume but about roughly 120 million bales. Uh, consequently, we still have all the cotton we need in a sense. Uh, and the market took back not only the 350, 325 points it, it gained that week, it took back some 430 from 450 points. So less than a week after that report came out, the market was down, net, net. So what it's telling us time and time again, we see it every week, and I talk about myself being a broken record, Demand is just simply in the pits. Demand is bad. Demand is horrible. USDA increased world demand in that report, as I recall, 600,000 bales. And yet uh, a number of us and people that know far more than I know about this are looking at each other saying, where are they getting this increased demand from? We're not finding it. Uh, 
listen to the news media for whatever they want to say, but the U.S. economy and the world economy is still in deep uh, trouble. There's still many problems. There's some good signs, but the net bad signs relative to cotton demand are very negative, remain negative. I have said for a long time not that we should not expect an increase in cotton demand until March of 2024. And I commented this past week, well, wow, it may be July, August, September of 2024 before cotton demand comes back. So the market was just simply telling us, okay, it's a short supply, but folks, there's still a lot of cotton around. There's more cotton than we need coming for the 23-24 marketing season which runs until July 31, 2024. So we just simply have a market that has all the cotton we need, even if we take the U.S. crop down another million bales. It, we might get a penny increase in, in, in New York prices. And typically, uh, 10 years ago, if we took the, the crop down a million bales, we would see anywhere from a 5 to $0.07 cent increase in New York. It's just not the way it is now. We've worn out the phrase, a global market, a global economy. But at the same time, we have cotton uh, that competes extremely well in, in, with U.S. cotton in our major export markets. China now is buying a good bit of Brazilian cotton. They're buying uh, more Australian cotton. Australia is very fine uh, cotton, and, and it competes very well with us. Too well, actually, but Brazil is the main culprit, and we're losing market share to Brazil. But China still remains our number one market. We've rotated from Turkey to Vietnam to China as being uh, the major U.S. market. But you take those three countries, uh, throw in a little bit of Bangladesh, and you'll have the four largest consumers of, U of the U.S. crop. They're still major consumers. But those major consumers are buying more and more of the Brazilian crop. So we're, we're beginning to lose a little market share, and that's just something we have to be extremely cognizant of. Another reason why the market, even after this significant reduction in crop size, turned around and said, oh, it's giving me a, you a big yawn. We're going back to the doldrums. We're just going to trade in this same trading range that we've been trading in since November of 2022. On the bottom side, we're pretty well supported about 82 cents. We could drop down to 80, 79 on the very bottom side, very well supported around 82, however. And then on the top side, just 88 cents is just a lead cap. It just we, we just can't get above 88 cents. It looks like we may have a shot at 90, 91, but that's, uh, to borrow a phrase from World War II, that's just a bridge too far, I'm afraid. So the trading range, but around 82 cents up to 87 cents, that's where we're going to spend our time, and that's the market's going back and field. Go there, go up to the top, come back down. Most of the time, probably 84 to 86 cents is where we'll see it prices trading uh, uh, the December contract in my opinion so what are what are growers going to do at, at uh, as, as harvest nears and ginning season pops up uh, you know what what's the magic number for growers to to say okay I'm going to pull the trigger and sell what I've got or I'm going to put some of it in storage what uh, you know what's what are their thoughts at this point well first off I think a grower should never pay storage cost 
if the storage cost by and large comes out of the grower's hide, we like to put it in storage and think that we can sell it later and pay storage and make some money. By and large, the research has shown that if, if that's what your thought process is, you're better off just buying a July call about two to three, about three to four cents out of the money, buy that July call and just uh, pay the storage costs that way, and you're probably better off. Historically, you're, you are without question better off. Uh, now then, as far as cash uh, selling on the market or, or, or taking taking cash out of the market, I would think somewhere between 86 cents and above, I begin my pricing. 86 cents December, I do a little bit of pricing. 87 cents, I do a little bit more. Maybe you want to wait till 87 and a half cents. But certainly at 86 cents, I do my initial pricing. 87 cents to 87 and a half, I do a little bit more pricing. And then anytime we get up to 87 and a half cents, uh, I think I, but I, 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 you may not want to become a hundred percent price, but I think at eighty-seven and a half cents, it you at least move up to at least seventy-five percent price, if not more, and then just take a small portion if you want to hold on to it, or if you want to go ahead and sell it and buy a call on that smaller portion. Uh, I, I just think that's the way to do it. I, because of the demand factor. We just should not expect prices to do much more than 88 cents if we even see the 88 cent mark again. We've seen it before on this contract, so yes, we can do it again. But we've also seen 79 cents, and if we can do 80 cents, if we can take it down to 81, well, we take it down to 79 too. It can just because it can. And once you get that low, and we get caught up this past week, we were also caught up in what the Wall Street was doing and what equities, the the uh, stock market was doing. And when we get in these doldrums, we look for something to follow. And cotton fundamentals are not a strong factor right now because there is no demand. So the only thing we're trading is supply. Bull markets do not exist, do not live in supply markets. They're not compatible. You just don't see them. So when we talk about going to 90, it's just such an outside change, and we just do not see any demand. We see China buying cotton. We're not seeing other countries buying much cotton. Uh, we're seeing Pakistan, who's been a tremendous buyer, buyer the last three years. Pakistan, we're seeing minor cancellations, and we're going to continue to see cancellations out of Pakistan. Uh, the late, great George Mullendorf said growing cotton in Pakistan is like growing cotton in a greenhouse. It's just absolutely perfect weather. Everything is perfect for growing cotton, and it is. They've just been hit by They have very poor uh, water control, uh, floods, rivers, any kind of heavy rain just washes them out, and that's what we've seen the last three years. This year, they have a buffer crop coming, so consequently, it's taken them out of the export market. We're losing a major customer this year in Pakistan, so that takes that demand off the shelf. China's economy is as sloppy and as ugly as the U.S. economy is. There's no demand there. Uh, consequently, they are, while they're going to continue to import cotton, China, the Chinese government is using the cotton sector, the textile sector, to maintain the, the employment status during their economic woes. So they'll continue to import cotton. But you don't see Bangladesh increasing imports. They've cut back slightly. 
You don't see Taiwan. You don't see Vietnam increasing their exports. They're all, everybody is just in a maintenance mode. Businesses remains very poor among the, uh, within the textile sector. Well, you know, and I know going back and talking about some of, some of the competitive countries here, we know Australia, yes, has had a great crop this year. Uh, and, and it's a hundred percent export market. Everything they produce goes on a ship somewhere. Um, Brazil's had a, it has a crop going. It may not be quite what they were looking for, but they've still got a lot of cotton to ship. How much of that Brazilian crop is exported? I've 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 heard a number, but it's been a while. A very fair question, and I have to be in all honesty. That's kind of the way I have to say that. Now they export most of their crop. Their crop is grown as an export crop. They have a small domestic industry, and it's small enough now that. And it's larger than it was. It had gotten down to just almost nothing, but it's come back a bit. But it's still, we have to view Brazil as a major export competitor. Uh, they grow that crop to export. They have improved their infrastructure, the transportation infrastructure out country. And additionally, what Brazil has done, they never had warehouses. Everything was stored outside. Brazil has begun, has, has developed a small warehousing industry. They continue to increase that. So the country itself, they can now store cotton themselves, not whereas they used to sell it as it, as it, as it was harvested. But they can store cotton now, so that adds to their, their, their ability to compete with us. They are a problem for us going forward in the export world. Yeah, is India going to be a factor in this market this year? How much, I mean, their production is looks like it's, fairly steady, but are, they're yeah. not going to really be an export market this year, are they? They are a major factor in the world, without question. They Right. They, they have the world's second largest uh, production, sometimes the largest. They have had the largest, as, and they have the world's second largest textile industry. Uh, and, and one day, I think we'll look at India and say they are the largest producer and the largest consumer. So they're on that re- track. Consequently, they are very major in what goes on. This particular year, uh, they things are very stable. They will not be a major factor in that regard. Their production, for the most part, will remain as domestic production. They'll ex, they'll fill in uh, in in Central Asia. Excuse me. They'll fill in in Southeast Asia uh, and in the Chinese markets. But by and large, it's going to be a de- domestic consumed crop. Okay. Any feel for, I know we, we talked about the August supply-demand report. Do you anticipate any more surprises when the September report shows up? Uh, I'm smiling here as you say that. Uh, the, the August report was a huge surprise to me. Again, USDA had never taken a bullet uh, that size in, the, in its August report in history. Of course, I guess we have to say maybe not in history, but near history have we had such a horrible July and uh that, uh, that that gave us that August report. You remember when the report comes out that this report was uh, came out uh, the 11th or the 12th of August. It was based on conditions as of August 1. So when the September report comes out, it will be based on conditions as of September 1, which is what, eight, nine days for, away from now. So, uh, you know, we, we basically, what is set is kind of set already. We've got another week of growing conditions. Uh, uh, I said when that report first came out that I anticipated that when the August report came that I anticipated that we would see probably a little bit larger crop uh, 
in the September estimate. I, I am a strong believer, I've been taught the hard way by being wrong, uh, that cotton is extremely resilient, and that old plant out there and those seeds that we have today just just find a way to make cotton bowl, cotton after cotton bowl after cotton bowl, and cotton surprises us with what its, what its yield is. But uh, maybe, hopefully, I will be wrong again, but uh, it, it seems that this, this particular weather pattern this year has just beaten us to death, and it seems to get worse, actually, as opposed to getting better. I, I anticipate, I do not anticipate the U.S. crop. At most, it might be a 14.5 million bale crop. I could even see USDA dropping it four or 500,000 bales. 13.5, 14.5 million bale crops. So, yes, I could see it going smaller. I have seen most all the Mississippi crop and three quarters of the Alabama crop in the last 10 days. And it's hard. Hard, it was hard for me not to find a field that was absolutely had already been cut out, what was already cut out. So we're not going to have any I mean, any great weather in September. Whatever's out there is already out there. We're not going to add anything else to it. And we've, I think we'll have more difficulty this year developing a top crop than we've had in many, many years. Well, you know, I've got one more que- one more question for you, and it is the most important question of the day. Well, I'm sure it doesn't relate to prices, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we are mere we are mere days away away from college football season starting. Anticipation is building, particularly every in every SEC and and probably Big Ten and you know Big Twelve campus. What's the prevailing attitude in Starkville right now, as opposed to say the prevailing attitudes in Oxford or Knoxville? Well, I would suggest that Knoxville will be nine and three, Oxford will be eight and four, and Starkville will be eight and four. Do you have any hard questions you could ask? <laughs> that that's gonna set up another classic egg bowl, right? Exactly. It's gonna be a winner truly a winner take all. That 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 score will probably be thirty eight to twenty three. <laughs> and you can wrap that in maroon and white. Fair enough. We'll you know, we'll we'll check back on that prediction here, you know, right around the end of November. And uh, and see how well you do, how your prognosticating skills. I look forward to it. I look forward to seeing you in October at the Exchange Building. We will get that. Yep, we will get that all set up. So, I think with that, I think with that, away we have probably said enough. We thank you for uh, for joining in to uh, explain something that is both simple and complicated at the same time. Well, I hope you'll find somebody that understands. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see how your predictions and, and other predictions all pan out here over the next couple months. So anyway, thanks for joining us. Thank you, man. So, all right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. We want to thank our old buddy, Dr. O.A. Cleveland, for his always insightful and interesting comments uh, on this cotton market. A big thanks, too, to Cargill for their participation and sponsorship of the Cotton Companion Podcast. And as always, we want to send our sincere thank yous to you, our dear listeners, for joining us. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please be sure to spread the word and tell your farming buddies about the Cotton Companion Podcast. Here's where and how they can do that. You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward slash companion 
or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, The Cotton Grower E-News, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Cotton Companion Podcast is produced twice monthly. Tyler Hatch and Kim Henderson are talented colleagues at the World Headquarters for Maestro Media Worldwide in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. I'm Jim Stedman. He's Beck Barnes. And we'll be back with you in a few weeks with the next episode of the Cotton Companion. Until then, stay safe, farmer. Please stay cool. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made a farmer. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made a farmer. Yeah, God bless.